morning. How are you? Oh, that was so cute with the little kiddos. Man, I was going to try to get in the little palm line. Was anybody thinking that too? And then I thought, no, that's not my time. I had my time. Um, I just have this one last announcement. You all received this card when you walked in, did you not? This card is not for you. You know exactly when the service is, but this card is for someone else. So if God has laid someone on your heart, just just be putting this card in front of you in your Bible, uh, on your nightstand, and just be like, God, who do you want me to bring this card to? Um, we would love you to do that. Easter is a time uh, like no other where if someone does not go to church, there is a sense within our culture or maybe within their background that they say, you know, I probably should go to church on Easter. And so you never know who God is working on their heart for you to be that messenger to bring that card. So just be thinking about that, um, who that person is, and make sure you take that with you as you go. We are in Easter season. Is this not the best season? You know, when I think about Easter, I think about so many different things. There's so many different aspects and angles of Easter that we can talk about. I was reading in First Peter, and I was thinking of, uh, like, when I read this verse, this is a verse that summarizes, like, our hope on Easter. Why someone who, if they potentially come and hear the gospel, can experience something radically different in their life and how you did yourself and i want to read it for you it's first uh, peter 1 3 praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ in his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead and that is what easter is about a, a new hope a new life and through Christ's resurrection from the dead, of which he is the first, and we are following him. We're going to be celebrating Easter. We're going to have those two services. But I want you to be thinking about, man, like as you come into Easter and preparing your heart, uh, I think we can get caught up in a lot of the things that are around Easter. But let's not forget that you were once dead, and you are now alive. You would never withhold and never not celebrate the greatest thing that has happened in your life. I was watching this documentary on this old power lifter who had to have a major heart, uh, like a, a, almost a level of like a, a, a valve put in that was like a metal valve. It was interesting how he was describing it. And, and, and he is a humble guy and has been humbled because he went from one of the, the strongest person on the planet to frail and weak. And I watched as he went into this doctor's office, the guy who did this surgery on his heart, and I couldn't believe the gratitude that he had for this doctor. That, that I could see the doctor was stunned at what he was saying. He was just like, I am here because of you. I have been able to reach so many people because of you. Thank you for what you've done for me. It's because of you, and thank you. And he brought his kids in. It was like, this. tell him thank you. And they're like, thank you for saving my dad's life. That is gratitude. And what Jesus did is so much more than a heart valve. He gave you a heart transplant. He gave you life and new life. And so as you go into Easter, let's prepare to celebrate what he had done. Um, when I think about Easter, I think about this 
spiritual war that happened. And as a kid, as I was growing up, I love sports. If you're a big sports fan, um, you will relate to this. If not, you will have tolerated this in your home. But I, lo I love watching, especially my team, that won the championship in any area, but, but nobody does it better than football, of when they win the championship and they are the reigning champs and they're parade in their city. Do you know what I'm talking about? If nobody riots, the parades are incredible. And when they go in and they want to be celebrated in their city, it's just one of the best things you can experience when you see the victory has come. It's, it's, if you look at Roman history, it, it's, it's actually interesting because we don't do these great military celebration parades the way they used to do it in the ancient days. But it's the closest thing what you see when the Kansas City Chiefs won the, the, the championship, whether you liked it or not, when they're coming in and they're gloating and they're bragging and everyone is cheering as they're walking down this parade and they're holding up their spoils of war and everyone is celebrating what they're doing. It's kind of one of those things and, and, and it would be just a little bit more relatable like ancient times the time that Jesus is making his triumphal entry is if the Kansas City Chiefs not only came in with their spoils of war, everyone is cheering, but, but they grabbed the, uh, the eagles, right, and they had them in chains and they were marching them behind them. And then what they were doing was they were taking all of the eagle stuff and then they were marching them through and as they were ushering them in, it'd be like this, like this next photo here, it'd be like if they're... Ticker, ticker tip, whatever that is, and it's everywhere, and they're marching their greatest warrior. This is what they did. And they would bring them through, and everyone would taunt them, and they would take their greatest warrior, and they would slaughter them and all of the warriors that were the great ones that they heard about in front of everyone and left them on display. That's how Rome that's how Greece entered cities triumphantly and how they returned home. Rome did this 350 times they had these parades in the city. We can't fathom that level of victory. But what the people knew is while they're watching the greatest of that city that they conquered in front of them, they may or may not have realized that the utter destruction left behind the city would never be the same again because they had everything from that city. They took it all. And it meant absolute conquering conquest. You know, when you look at the crucifixion, it's interesting because when you see the crucifixion, it reminds you a little bit of this parade. It's sin's battle against Christ, against God. And it feels like when you, look at the, when you look at the crucifixion, he's being marched through the streets and people are taunting him. And they take God's greatest victor. And sin seems like it's won its battle. And they slaughter him in front of everyone and they make a public display and they leave him for all to remember who's in charge and who has power. It feels like sin had won its victory that day. It feels like it all went that way. You know, 
But if you back up a week, which we're at today celebrating, it's going to feel a little different. Earlier, Jesus, a week prior, was walking into Jerusalem in a triumphant parade that he was bringing victory to those who were lost, hopeless, against the world's power. And they were thinking victory is coming. And a week later, they walk out scratching their heads saying, what was, what was that about? Like, that, that didn't last long. Like, we, there was no chance. Our, our greatest leader is now there. And it's interesting because uh, if you would remember there, uh, and some of you may have seen it, uh, the Michael Spinks-Mike Tyson fight. Do you guys, did anybody watch this? Now, as a kid growing up, I loved Mike Tyson. And I was a, if, oh, by the way, if you don't know Mike Tyson, if you're of a certain age, uh, you would know him from the Hangover movies, you know, the guy with the tattoo on his face. But back in the day, he was a formidable fighter. He was a monster in the ring. Everyone was scared of him. And it was interesting because, you know, I watched his rise and fall. And as he was in the ring and, and everybody's watching this fight, this heavyweight fight, and Michael Spinks is like this guy who's going to take on Mike Tyson. I remember thinking at least it's going to go three rounds. At least. And if you don't know the fight, you can go on YouTube under the uh, historical documents and you can find this fight. It literally, I think it lasts like just over 30 seconds. This is a heavyweight fight. We're watching. We paid for the pay-per-view. We're watching it. Everyone paid to go there. And it's ding, ding. 30 seconds later, it's over. And the guy is on the ground. And you're like, how did that happen? It's over. This must have been how it felt when Jesus is on that cross. You know what I mean? This must have been what it felt like. Like, that's it? That's all there is? I have a big question for you, and I want you to think about this question uh, all through the service, and I want you to think about it when you walk out. Do I see victory the way God does? Because I think the triumphal entry is, it actually has quite a bit of angles to it if you look at it, and we're going we're gonna to pull out a few today. And it's more than just uh, sometimes what we see it as. There's a lot more being said in this triumphal entry. And, and I want you to think for a second, maybe what these people were struggling with is how they saw victory and how God sees victory. Because it very much relates to your life. Because in one way, you're thinking in a paradigm that has been shaped in us to think of what victory is. But in another way, Jesus brings a victory that blows that paradigm away. And the struggle in life is to reconcile those two paradigms and never try to overlap one with the other because they will not make sense if we do that like it did many of the people. Uh, let's, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to Luke 19. This triumphal entry is in every one of the Gospels, and every one of them are worth reading about a chapter ahead and a chapter after because you get a really good idea of what each one of the Gospel writers are trying to convey. But this Luke is probably one of my favorite ones, and it starts in verse 28. I'll read the whole thing, and then we're going to walk through a few parts of it. 
It says that when he heard these things, they went out ahead and going to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And when they drew near to Bethsaida and Bethany and at the Mount of Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where uh, on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You should say, the Lord is in need of it. Now remember, this works for Jesus. It will not work for you if you are trying to take something, okay? So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, and as they were untying the colt, its owners, of course, said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the, on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice in praising God with a loud voice and for all the mighty works that he had done, uh, what they had seen saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And it goes right into the next. These are consecutive stories, but they're all in one path. Verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For these days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear, down, or tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your salvation. This speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem that is uh, uh, executed by uh, Titus. And it's interesting because uh, Jesus m multiple times in all of the Gospels is prophesying this moment is going to come. Verse 45. And he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people uh, were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything that they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, today, just even seeing our, our young ones hold a palm branch of victory, which it meant to all the people that a Savior has arrived and victory is yours. And God, although maybe they didn't realize what that palm meant, we realize it now and we're thankful for that. And so God, so many of us don't realize we hold the palm of victory in our hand every day, all the time, because you are with us. And you will always be with us. So we thank you for the victory won on the cross, the debt paid, and the resurrection of new life that we can live anew. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.
It's interesting because every time uh, someone conquered, like Alexander the Great, when he came and he conquered Ephesus, he, it's very well documented. He went into the city, and as he conquered, the people of the synagogues or the temples would come alongside of him and try to get him to come to their temple, which they traditionally did, because it was the route. They didn't go to the palace. They didn't go anywhere else. They went right to the temple of whatever place they conquered, and they did a sacrifice to their god, and Alexander sacrificed to Dionysus. And then they allowed him to do that there, which is a tragedy because he was giving victory in the name of another God. But Jesus doesn't do that. He comes into the gates and he goes right to the temple and he does what he needs to do, which is clear out all of the people who are making it difficult for people to know their maker. And he begins to deal with the corruption and the issues that's happening, that keeping people from knowing God intimately and connecting with them, distorting the faith in order to profit from the faith or contorting it so others are always kept in a certain place. Jesus comes and starts to do a correction. This is one of the things that is happening on Palm Sunday. So the title of this message, The Reality of Palm Sunday, I want us to learn to look beyond myself and see what God is up to. We have to be able to do that. When you're seeing and you're reading scripture and you're going, what's the meaning behind what's happening here? You have to do what some of those people couldn't do. Look beyond yourself and see actually what Jesus is doing in this moment because it has lasting impact on us today. There's two realities Jesus was ushering in on Palm Sunday and why this moment was so significant, I think, especially outside the cross, is one is he was redefining power. In this moment, he was absolutely redefining power. Now, listen, how we see power is very different than how Jesus sees power. You know what I mean? He wasn't teaching the people to pick up arms. He wasn't giving them all self-defense classes. You know what I mean? He, he was teaching them a different way of power. And it's important because it comes from God, the creator of the universe, who is all-powerful is showing them what power is. And we should never forget that because our humanity wants to tiptoe into a power that has ruled this world for way too long and caused so much destruction and devastation and pain. And so when he looks at the city and he weeps, he's broken because he's, he, he's saying what's true is that people who are in power outside of God's power, trusting God's power, his ways, will always acquire power that will not be peaceful. And we have to re see what he's proclaiming here. But he is redefining power. Jesus often confused his followers. He often confused his fans. And he often confused the authorities because God's ways don't always line up with our wants. And what God's ways are will, will not always match your wants. Will not always meet you what you meet you where you want God to be. They will be different. And this is why he was a very frustrating leader. Have you ever had a, a boss who is doing something? You just don't understand why they're doing it. And you're just like, I can't, I, I don't know why you're making that decision. It's the dumbest decision. Especially when you're young, you know what I'm talking about? And you definitely know more than everybody else. You know what I'm talking about? None of you, but like as you get older, you realize I am a little dumber than I thought. You know, that's a good moment to come to. 
And then you look at your boss and you're like, I just wouldn't do it that way. And then over time you realize, because you see the wisdom in what's happening, you go, oh, 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 I see, I see what you're talking about. God works this way in our lives. We try to jump too quickly. And like a lot of the people who are waving the palms and laying the cloaks down saying, okay, okay, it's, it's my way now. We're going we're, we're gonna to take over the city. Jesus is going to come in. He's going to lead. We're definitely fighting the Romans. We got this. Have you seen what he can do? If we get hurt in battle, he'll, he'll, he'll heal us. Like, they got a plan. But what God wants is not always what you want. Let me, let me read this about redefining power. Jesus is uh, uh, the story of Jesus. And I think from start to finish, it absolutely breaks the power logic that we tend to hold in, in, in our world today, especially how power works, how authority works. I just listed out a few just from just my recollection of Jesus' journey. He was born in difficult circumstances. That's no great leader. He worked with his hands. What? He... he he doesn't have this supreme education. He's working with his hands. He chooses undesirables who had nothing to offer him. That's not how the world works. Like, let me help you, but you're definitely going to help me. That's how our world works. Honor, he honored the Father over everyone, over himself and over everyone. He met people where they were. He told a different story about who they were. He was hungry. He was unhoused at times. He crossed cultural boundaries. He didn't succumb to popular pressure to take what was his. He served them. And now they came to march with him into the holy city. And only a few days later, they went home. And, and they would probably have said to one another, like, we had hope, but that hope is gone. You know, the thing that's interesting about Jesus, he did exactly what power doesn't do. He promoted others, he loved others, he deeply wept over their pain, and he hurt, he, he hurt for his enemies, the people who hated him. He resisted temptation to gain the world's way. He didn't fight the world's way. He gave it all for strangers. This is not the way we do power. He died alone in a shameful death, and he glorified God with his last breath. Oh, that rhymed. I am like a poet. But if you think about it, this is who Jesus was start to finish. And, and I think when we think about power and we think about how God will intervene with power, we have to think about the way Jesus operated. And the triumphal entry is a good, a, good, a good framing to think, remember who Jesus was his entire journey. So how he came in is exactly who he was. I'll give you a few things to remind you of when the way that the world defines power or the struggles that we'll have with power, right? When it rises up, what to remember out of the story. When eagle rises up, remember verse 35. Remember verse 35. And when Jesus, when it was going back to the colt, when it, they brought it to Jesus, throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set him on it. They set Jesus on a baby donkey that was not even his. It was borrowed. This is no way a king comes. This is no way a king enters in in a triumphal entry with all the pomp and all the promise on a war horse. This is how they all did it. Jesus comes very 
very different. There was a prophecy in Zechariah 9. You should read it. It, it. it describes the Messiah as a humble victor for the entire world. This is how Jesus came. And it says he will come on a donkey, humble. The world doesn't recognize this type of power when we see it. Do we recognize it? We have to learn to separate the two. When, when elitism rises up, remember verses 39 and 40, and it will be good for your soul. Spiritual elitism, I think, but it can be worldly elitism. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This comes from two places in Scripture, but it's a reminder. The Pharisees are the elite. They run the show. Who are these vagabonds, these worthless people to them, cheering and recognizing who God is when they themselves should? That reference comes from Habakkuk 2, and it's a direct jab Jesus is giving to these Pharisees. Because if they, they know their scripture. They know it well. And when he says stones cry out, he's referencing in Habakkuk 2 when it's a woe to these people who have abandoned the people and they've locked themselves away in their secure home. And they've profited off of the people. And they have cut them out. They can suffer, but we're good. This is a remembrance to every Christian who looks out at the world and sees a bunch of horrible, sinful people. That's what these, these Pharisees are doing. We cannot be like that. And so when the elitism, when I've got it together, I'm a good person. Look at the way I live my life. These heathens, how dare they? He's giving them a reminder, if you will not recognize me, and in that little Habakkuk passage it says, the very stones will cry out because you will not see what's happening in front of you. The second reference there that's worth reading is in Luke 3, John the Baptist says this. And some of the believers there are going, hey, like, what do we need salvation for? We're born of Abraham. We're good. Or in our case, I was born in church. Literally, I was born in church. All I know is born in church. Well, hold on. John the Baptist says to them who are saying to him, we've inherited this life. John says this. You ready? He says that if you think that, then you're sadly mistaken. And if God needs to, he'll raise up from these stones, he says, a people for himself. Meaning... God will make the people. He will find the people. They are out there and they are numerous. And he will raise them up. So when elitism rises up, and you remember those two verses, Jesus is setting the tone for what true power is. When arrogance rises up, which is, which is an absolute earmark of worldly power. When it rises up, remember verse 42, and I'll read it to you again. Would that you, and he's speaking of Jerusalem, even you had known this day that these things are these things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. We can get so caught up in the things that make us secure, what we think gives us control. And Jesus is saying, you have missed it the whole time. Now, maybe what we don't realize about what Jesus is saying actually historically is well documented. 
when Jerusalem is destroyed, Titus, he uh, 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 has this uh, recorded saying. And when he talks about it, he describes how formidable Jerusalem was to destroy. He, it was a tremendous siege. It went on for over a year. And it is a battle of battles. And as it's described by Josephus, the great uh, uh, documenter of, uh, of ancient antiquity for Jews, and also in Rome, he says, I have to thank our gods because it was a very difficult siege, but we, they delivered it, Jerusalem to us. And, he just, and Josephus describes what they did. They, they, they left a few buildings that were tall, good, and they left the Roman garrison. But what they did to the walls of where they found their confidence, they devastated the walls and three-quarters of the walls of Jerusalem to the ground so that future generations would remember that you cannot fortify a city like that again. When arrogance rises up, what we put our confidence in, what we rest behind, what we take for granted, and what we think is true salvation, it will crumble to the ground. And we have to remember Jesus is saying there is a way, and you, you, you should not miss it, and it is peace. Uh, when self-ambition rises up, remember verse 46. Verse 46, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, I know you're thinking this is just about church and church greed and money, but you you, you, you separate that for a second because this isn't just about that. This is a heart check for all Christians. I, I can only say it this way. It's, this is the justification we try to align with our faith for self-ambition. And we can do that in a lot of different ways. We can come justifying certain things in our life, bearing it with our faith and saying, well, this is just, this is what my faith says. But it's not. It's actually self-ambition. And he's warning us that this is how the world's power works. This is not how Christ's power works. When jealousy rises up, remember verse 47. Verse 47, he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Now, listen, jealousy is a powerful emotion. If you've ever been jealous, and sometimes it's a good thing, where it's a warning, and then sometimes it, is, uh, it will burn the house down. Do you know what I'm talking about? It will go wild. It will make you lose perspective. And this is exactly what's happening when jealousy or wanting something that's not yours or being jealous that someone else has. This is, feeds into the world's power structure. I wrote this down. Jealousy, uh, jealousy blinded even those tasked with recognizing the Messiah first through their intimate knowledge of Scripture. They were the ones, these Pharisees, these scribes, these Sadducees were the ones most informed about how to recognize the Messiah. And their jealousy of what was happening got in the way of being able to recognize who Jesus was. It, it's interesting because I think like, uh, would I recognize God when I see him or in someone else? what he's doing through someone else, would my jealousy get in the way? Would I recognize what God is doing? 
Jesus came to redefine power in this moment. I know the cross doesn't look like it, but in this moment speaks to a lot. The cross speaks to ultimate power, which is surrender and servanthood. And true power is surrendering to God's will. The second thing we can learn from this, and this will be our last thing we'll talk about today before we take communion, is he redefined people. And this is the good news, and this will lead right into communion. In this triumphal entry, you're going to see, and all throughout Jesus' ministry, he has redefined people. Do you want me to tell you how he defined them? This is just my perspective. But when I look at the vast writings in the gospel of how Jesus defined people, he defined them into two people. Here they are. Those who are in need of him and incapable without him. And those who don't realize it yet. Those are the people and how Jesus defined them. I think we love to define people like, oh, well, they're just not my kind of people. Or, oh, they, they just, they just kind of are from a different culture. I don't quite, you know, they're just not my kind of people. Oh, oh, they're from this certain social class. We love to define people because it allows us to make judgments quickly. Jesus did not do that. Jesus defined people into those two categories, those who realize and recognize that they are absolutely desperate and that they see him as a savior and those who have not realized it yet. Why was it? You ever wonder? Why was it? And I think he, the, the movement of Christianity has been mocked throughout ancient culture. When you read the writings, it's a movement of poor people. It's a movement of those of a lower class. It's a movement of those people who have nothing. But why do you think maybe? Why? And we need this challenge in the United States probably more than any other country. Why was it those people? I think because they were closer to desperation, realizing that they needed a savior than those who had complete control of their life. Those who were those who were the haves. And the, the have-nots, the people who were blind, and the people who were the outcasts, and the people who were ostracized, and the people who uh, were, were not um, uh, recognized at all for any validity of their speech, those people were so out that they had nothing. So Jesus was very, very attractive to them. And I have to challenge us to always remember that we can become very much like those Pharisees we love to say that uh, other people are like. You know what I'm talking about? No? Well, I've done it before. I was like, that person's just a Pharisee. And I'm like, ooh, you being one. We have to be careful with that. But he redefined the way people were. This is why the communion table is so important because we are all coming to the communion table in a minute as, as equals, equally desperate, equally broken. There is nothing that separates us in that moment. We love to separate us, but Jesus does not. You know, when you stand before God, i got to ask you this. When you stand before God, what do you think will impress him? Have you ever thought about that? Imagine you're standing before God. You know, the pearly gates kind of story we always like will read about, but really you're going to be before God. What do you think will impress God? And I think if you have answers, you should rethink it. I don't think you'll be talking. I think it'll be God who will be talking. But I think a lot of times we think, well, oh, I was a good citizen. I helped the homeless. 
I treated people kind. I was a good person. I went to church. I tithed. I volunteered. And those are all good things. But no, that's not what will impress God. I'll tell you what will impress God according to the Bible. Did you call on Jesus? Did you live in his grace? Did you give his grace? And did you follow him? That will impress God. And I don't think you have to be of any class in life, any culture in life, any wherever, whatever family you were born into. Those four things seem to me in scripture is what will impress God in that moment when you meet him. It will not be all of the other things that we think will impress God, although they are good things and should come out of our decision. But those won't be the things you will utter in front of God. He has redefined people. And we need to hear it now more than ever. I feel like division creeps in, and it's all around us and among us, and we have to remember those two categories. I think when spiritual entitlement creeps up, remember verses 36, 38, and 48. I'll read them again. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God. Listen to what they're doing. Praising God with a loud voice, with all of his mighty works that they had seen. They're experiencing God. They're seeing him. And this is the announcement they're making. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Verse 48 closed out that little section we read earlier. They did not, this is the Pharisees trying to catch Jesus or arrest him. They did not find anything they could do for all of the people were hanging on his word. When spiritual entitlement creeps up, remember the heart that's following Jesus. Remember the difference between what's going on with the spiritual elite and those who are spiritually deprived. It's this heart that's hanging on every word. That is how you can combat that. I want to read this. I really liked it. It's from a commentary. And I want to read it in entirety because it does such a good job of framing the, the way Jesus came and how he redefined people. And why Jesus is such good news. In the Gospels, Something is always out of place. The rich fool dies. The neighbor is a Samaritan. The publican goes down from the temple justified. And now the king enters the city riding on a borrowed donkey. Jesus was a king, but no ordinary one. The king of fishermen, tax collectors, Samaritan, who were those who were on the outs, harlots, Blind men, demoniacs, and cripples. Those who followed Jesus were a ragtag bunch, pathetically unfit for grand hopes that danced in their imaginations. They were women now, uh, th there were women now who leaped with joy. A Samaritan leper with a heart full of gratitude. A crippled woman who had been unable to stand up straight with dignity for 18 years. And a blind man who followed Jesus all the way to the gates from Jericho. The cloaks thrown down on the road were not expensive garments, but tattered shawls and dusty, sweat-stained rags. Jesus was a king of the oppressed and the suffering. He shared their hardships. 
He relieved their suffering. He accepted them when others deemed them as unacceptable, gave them hope and embodied God's love for them, uh, gave them love for them. And now they came to march with him in the holy city. And only a few days later on their way home, right, they would probably say to one another, but we had hope he was the one who redeemed Israel. Jesus was was redefining everything. And, and, and I love how the writer states the, the, the contrast of how what we look for as good and as acceptable and what God sees. And so as we're going to close here, I want you to read with the first generation believers what was revealed in their hearts about victory. Because the palm represents victory. We will all be raising up, like Revelation says, and I think it's in 21, a palm of victory, chanting, cheering around the throne of God from people from all tribes, all nations, all people with one thing in common. We hold victory in our hand, bought by Jesus. And here's how they had the revelation of victory. 1 Corinthians 5, 4, uh, 54, death is swallowed up in victory. It's a quote from the Old Testament. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And he describes it. Paul begins to understand, describe what the sting is. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in, work of, in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. They understood, oh, this is victory. True victory is freedom from sin. I am now a child of God. I can stand before God clear because of what Jesus did. This is victory, and, and it's the greatest victory. More than a miraculous mortgage payment coming through. More than the job you want. More than what we can imagine. That is the victory, and that is what Easter is going to be celebrating, is that you hold the greatest victory. 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith in Jesus. I, I, I know it's, it's very, very simple. But I think that this, the triumphant story speaks so much about what Jesus was up, up to. And we as believers, I just want to encourage us to not be lost in a lot of the the struggles that we will battle, a lot of the voices and messages that try to tell us what true people are and what true power is. Because Jesus redefines it all in his ministry. And as his followers, we must follow. Like Peter, he lost it for a minute when they were trying to take Jesus and he pulls out a sword and he wants to defend Jesus. And Jesus is like, that's just not how we do things here. We have to continually be reminded about what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means and how we see people and how we see power and authority and how we see God working, even if it's different, like those people experienced, different than what their hopes and expectations were because the true victory is that you have won the battle through Jesus against sin, your greatest enemy.
You're going to choose every day to find life in a few definitions. The world's definition of power is security, trust, and confidence in other things outside of God. Jesus' definition of power, it's Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. That's when you will see what true definition of power is. The world's ways, I think of defining people as class and culture and intellect and value and worth that we give them. Jesus' definition is those who see they need a Savior and those who do not see yet. That's how he sees people. We're going to take communion right now. And, and I want you to, as you, uh, you can come forward any time during this song. And I want you to take a moment as you grab communion. You can head back to your chair while we worship. Is to take a second and reflect on what this is. That you, because of Christ's sacrifice. Because if you don't know this, you must. That even if you only had one sin in your life. You curse that one time, one time. It's still sin to God, which cannot be in the presence of God. But we know that that's not true. We've seen you drive. <laughs> Your family knows you. So Jesus being, this is why it's important that he was perfect, that he walked a perfect life and offered himself as this perfect sacrifice of which you couldn't ever do. Is so you could stand in the presence of God through his sacrifice and through his blood that runs through your veins because you are a follower of Christ. That's what this means. And as we come up here, we stand as equals, all needing that. And this is where the true power lies. So let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for who you are and, and, and what you've done in our life, God. We thank you for sending your son to die on the cross, that he came to save the world. And God, I ask that each one of us, we walk out these doors and we say, hmm, how do I see victory and how do you see victory, God? And so maybe, God, in some way, it will stop us from looking at the things around us and see that they're failures and not victory and actually look at what victory is. And then we can encourage ourselves in that, that you work differently, you walk differently, you do things differently. But God, your ways are greater than our ways, better than our ways. And we want to follow that. And God, I ask that each one of us, as we walk out, holding internally a palm of victory, that God, that we have defeated, you have defeated, and we walk behind you in the greatest defeat of an enemy in the history of the world, and that is sin. And God, thank you that we have that victory in you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me and we take communion?